we connect with the alien, we connect with the robot, we connect with the other, because we live in a world that does not accept or understand us. So therefore, every time we have an interaction with the Federation, we're, we're interacting with the brave new world. Episode 10, Star Trek is Autistic. Welcome to the Autistic Culture Podcast. Each episode, we dive deep into autistic contributions to society and culture by introducing you to some of the world's most famous and successful autistics in history. Before we get started, a quick disclaimer on how we use the word autistic. The purpose of this show is not to diagnose the people or characters we discuss as autistic. While some may have announced being autistic, what we're really sharing here is our observation of what is representative of autistic culture. It can sometimes be difficult for autistic people to celebrate our natural tendencies and traits due to the perception of autism as a disorder that needs to be fixed, a long history of damaging medical interventions to get autistics to fit in with mainstream culture, and protective masking skills many of us have developed to try to stay safe. Whether you are autistic or just love someone who is, your hosts, Dr. Angela Loria, the linguistic autistic. And licensed psychological practitioner, Matt Lowry, welcome you to take this time to be fully immersed in the language, values, traditions, norms, and identity of Autistica. So yeah, we've got a lot of ground to cover today because when when I started thinking about... Well, so Star Trek is something that I've wanted to cover from the beginning because of everything we're going to talk about today. But uh, I, I originally wanted to dive into the origins of Spock because Spock is one of the all-time great autistic characters. The Vulcans are some of the all-time great autistic races because... So, for people who don't know Star Trek, Vulcans are very, very human, but uh, they have these intense, intense emotions that they have learned to intensely control uh, over the years, and they worship logic because mm, uh, their too. emotions... Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> their emotions will cause them to go out of control. So they learn meditation, they learn logic, and they learn how to have these this absolute control over their emotions. So to outsiders, they appear emotionless, but they have these incredible great feelings inside. So uh, this causes a lot of stuff you know, to uh, for dramatic tension and all sorts of situations, the whole pond far thing. Uh, it's it's a big one. Uh, basically, when uh, Spock, you know, uh, needs to go home on occasion, uh, that was actually the first time that they showed uh, what Vulcan looked like in uh, a muck time. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So okay, I so wanted... Spock is Vulcan, Spock but he is lives Vulcan. among. Is he the only well, Vulcan? There's another Vulcan, I think. Well, that's oh oh well okay. So Spock is half human and half Vulcan. Ah, uh, his it. his father Sarek is full Vulcan. His mother uh, it was a dignitary from Earth, uh, a doctor, and uh, he grew up in two worlds and. The, the Vulcans used to make fun of him for, you know, being half human, half Vulcan. The humans that he works with on the Enterprise don't really understand him because he's Vulcan. He's too alien to be human, too human to be alien. Mm. So he's caught between worlds. And therefore, a, a huge point of identification for the audience. Because mm -hmm. if anyone ever felt isolated and felt out of place, Spock is your man, right? Yeah. And... The entire Vulcan race is somewhat like Spock in that, you know, they have great big emotions and worship logic to control them. Uh, but but I wanted to figure out why, because this is such an autistic thing. And this was back in the early 60s that this kind of stuff came up with. Right. So I wanted to see if there was some sort of origin, uh, an autistic origin for Spock. Is Leonard Nimoy autistic? Was Roddenberry right. autistic? Where did all this come from? Uh, so it turns out it really, really seems like Gene Roddenberry probably a listic. 
Uh, his I uh, oh Alistic, yeah. Uh, but his his idea for Star Trek was wagon train in space. He used okay. to work on Wagon Train. Uh, actually, Leonard Nimoy worked on Wagon Train. So they said, oh, yes, every uh, every episode we're going to go to a different planet, have a different situation, just like Wagon Train. So he decided that, you know, Leonard Nimoy was going to be a part of this. Leonard Nimoy was going to be a red-skinned Martian with pointy ears. Okay. Well, we got the pointy ears. Yeah, but uh, the problem with that is that uh, he looked demonic. He was afraid of, you know, letters. Plus, he was afraid that within his lifetime, we would colonize Mars and that it would be silly. So, you know, forward thinking. Good for him on that. So they changed Spock's skin tone to yellow and then made him a Vulcan. But the uh, color correctionist thought that there was an error and they color corrected him back to flesh tone. No. So, yeah. So they just decided to go with plain old pointy ears. Nimoy hated the pointy ears. So they said, oh, we'll eventually have him have plastic surgery. But he kept him throughout his entire thing. So anyway, that was how Spock was originally created. But in the pilot episode... Spock did not have any of these Vulcan characteristics. He 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 was kind of jovial. In the pilot episode, the autistic character was number one, mm. uh, played by Majel Barrett, uh, Gene Roddenberry's then girlfriend, and she played a very very stoic, emotionless first officer, and she was the one advising then Captain Pike uh, on what to do. She was basically the Spock role, but. Uh, it, uh, NBC executives said, I can't believe we have a woman in control of a starship. We can't have that happen. So No one will she, believe it. Exactly. <laughs> so she was recast as Nurse Chapel. Uh, she later became the voice of the Enterprise all the way through her death a few years ago. But before she died, she recorded tons and tons of, you know, words and word chunks so that she can still be the voice of the Enterprise today. Wow, brilliant. Yeah, she was very forward-thinking on this. But but anyway, so uh, by the time they shot the second pilot, they'd replaced Captain Pike with William Shatner and replaced number one and bumped Spock up to her place and gave him her characteristics. So he became the stoic one. But he also added in a lot of stuff from himself. So Leonard Nimoy... Uh, is the son of immigrants from what is now Ukraine. And he was very, very much into the Jewish community. He was very, very much into meditation. He invented the uh, Vulcan salute because in Hebrew, this uh, represents the letter Shin, which is like Shalom. Hmm. So he invented the Vulcan salute. He invented the Vulcan nerve grip, or yeah, Vulcan nerve grip because... (laughs) He was required to get into a fight with someone, but he said Spock is too logical to get into a fist fight. He's just going to like pinch him and they're going to fall down. And this is this is the sort of influence that Leonard Nimoy had. So, again, I said, hey, is Leonard Nimoy autistic? And it turns out that he says that he he very, very intensely got into the role of Spock. He was very much a method actor. He said that he played Spock 12 to 14 hours a day, five days a week, and it influenced his personality in his private life. Each weekend, he would fall back into himself, but when he was Spock, he was more logical, more rational, more thoughtful, less emotional, and finding calm in every situation. And years later, in 1975, he wrote an autobiography uh, as uh, his uh, coexistence between himself and Spock. So this duality within him of Leonard Nimoy and Spock, and his autobiography was, I am not Spock. Mm. Saying clearly, I am not Spock. But 20 years later, he wrote another autobiography called I am Spock. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So he had some very, very interesting characteristics that overlapped. And this may have led to uh, what may have been a professional rivalry with William Mm -hmm. Shatner because so Shatner is sort of a loose cannon as far as, you know, captains go. But when, when Star Trek came on uh, TV, all the fan mail went to Spock. 
Shatner signed up to be the lead character, the hero, but everybody liked Spock. So it got Shatner a little verklempt. So eventually Shatner had it written into his contract that everything that Leonard Nimoy got, he also got to the point where Leonard Nimoy got to direct a Star Trek movie. So he wanted to direct a Star Trek movie. He was very, very jealous of Leonard Nimoy and this, uh, Throughout their lives, uh, he he did a documentary about the captains of Star Trek. Leonard Nimoy said he didn't want to be in it, so Shatner had some person go and secretly videotape Leonard Nimoy to be in the documentary, and this ended their communication altogether. And to this day, William Shatner picks fights with autistic people on Twitter. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure he is not autistic. Oh, God, no. No, no. Uh, William Shatner, very, very, uh, it seems that he very much dislikes autistic people. He is not a big fan of uh, the autistic Star Trek Uh. fans. There's a lot of issues there. So, again, it could be that, you know, he's jealous of Spock and it bleeds over, or it just could be that he's uh, a shat. <laughs> so, so he is a shat. So, wait, do you think Leonard Nimoy is autistic? That's a good question. I, I can't find anything that would suggest it. But, again, it, it could. So where? So that's the question. Where does Spock come from? Where does the autisticness of Spock come from? So we must look at the writing. So are there writers that imbue Spock with autistic traits? So this is where uh, it seems to be the most logical. Uh, Uh, Keep the puns coming, Matt. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And so this is another thing. Uh, Spock isn't the only autistic character aside from number one in the original Star Trek, because when you think about autistic traits, males are traditionally given the Spock persona of emotionless, logical, all this other stuff. But the traditional stereotypical female autism is emotional and compassionate and great big feelings about things. And that describes Leonard Bones McCoy to a T. So the autistic community has done a lot of diving into this and has uh, pretty much adopted Bones as the female autistic archetype. He's in a caring profession. He has a lot of empathy towards uh, his patients. He gets into arguments with Jim and Spock over how to treat people. He gets very frustrated when, you know, he's asked to, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer, you know, what, whatever situation comes up. And he and Spock often butt heads, but they are also best friends. And th- this is a, a very interesting thing because, uh, McCoy represents the emotion, Spock represents the logical, two halves of a whole, and once again, Kirk is out in the cold just doing whatever. (laughs) And this goes into even Star Trek II, which is why, uh, so, spoiler alert for a 35-year, 40-year-old movie at this point, but, uh, so, Star Trek II... Uh, Leonard Nimoy wanted out. He was done playing Spock, so he wanted a great death. And he he ended up sacrificing his life to save the people of the Enterprise and to save this Genesis project. Uh, uh, they had this massive weapon that Khan, a, uh, one of the all-time great villains of Star Trek and science fiction, uh, Khan was going to use the Genesis device, a device that could reformat planets. So they had to stop him. So, so anyway... Uh, in order to stop Khan, Spock had to go into the reactor of the Enterprise and he died of radiation sickness. And when asked why, when McCoy said, oh, my God, why did you do this? Uh, he, he said, the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And that is one of the all time great lines of, you know, self-sacrifice and, you know, community, putting others' needs above your own. Because again, Spock was a very logical, very caring character. And he he sacrificed himself so his friends could live. But uh, when Star Trek Three came along, uh, Nimoy decided he wanted back. Uh, so they left sort of an out in that right before he sacrificed himself, he gave uh, McCoy the, the nerve grip so that McCoy would faint and st- not 
you know, stop him from sacrificing himself. And in doing so, he essentially transferred his soul into McCoy. So in Star Trek Three, McCoy and Spock coexist before he can put Spock back in his Spock body. Uh, but anyway, uh, then Leonard Nimoy got to direct Star Trek Four. So this, <laughs> this again, leads into the, the theory that perhaps the writers are autistic. Uh, at least one writer. Uh, the, the people who shaped who shaped the characters uh, are often uh, not as credited as the people that you see on screen because you don't see them. You don't see them every week. You don't know what contributions they made. You don't know how refined they made the scripts. Uh, and I think that this is a thing that continues, especially when you look at the legacy of Star Trek, because aside from Spock, aside from McCoy, aside from number one, every single Star Trek incarnation since then has had at least one autistic character so the next one that we come to is data uh, uh lieutenant commander data <laughs> i love data uh data is from star trek the next generation he is an android and one of his first scenes in the pilot of next generation is getting into an argument with mccoy <laughs> Because he was the only original cast member to show up originally for Next Generation until Leonard Nimoy also reprised his role. So Data, again, starts off as essentially this ubermensch, this perfectly designed android that is stronger, smarter, faster than anyone else on the Enterprise, who has a processing speed that rivals the computers of the far-flung future of uh, 10 years ago. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they, they uh, again, they could not anticipate how fast technology would develop. But as writing progressed, uh, I love The Next Generation. It's one of my all-time favorite series. I will confess, season one is garbage. Okay. It was, it was terrible. Uh, a lot of that was due to behind-the-scenes fighting, uh, Gene Roddenberry getting into poor health and not wanting uh, intra-staff uh, conflicts in the Federation, which led to a lot of other issues. And uh, yeah, so, so anyway, Data did not, Data was not quite himself in the beginning until around the writer's strike of 1988. And in the writer's strike, uh, they decided to start accepting outside uh, solicitations for scripts, right? And one of the people that submitted these scripts uh, is a woman named Melinda M. Snodgrass. Okay. And she uh, submitted some scripts. Eventually, she uh, was a very big part of 16 episodes over the, cross of, uh, over the span of two years, all of which are data-centric. And uh, one of these was the uh, the measure of a man, one of the defining moments of science fiction culture where Picard and Riker had to defend Data's humanness because this guy, th this doctor from the Federation wanted to dissect Data, analyze why Data worked as he did and build an army of Datas to lead Starship, lead uh, the, the fleet of Starships. So, but anyway, they had to prove that data was human or that data was sentient that data was alive there is our turing test the ultimate exactly. speaking of autistics we'll do a little a little turing Ex test action exactly and that's the thing because this whole thing is for for years people have dehumanized autistics people have played down our interests our i like emotions. when you say for years as if it's not still happening exactly. right this exactly. very second <laughs> exactly even today with like aba everything about autistic quote treatment is about trying to make us more neurotypical mm -hmm. and it's it it's a miserable failure because you can't change someone's neurotype. You can't change someone's brain. And everything about this, uh, we fight this battle on a daily basis to be taken as human, <laughs> to be accepted as human. And this measure of a man is a big, big seminal moment for people like us because when we watch it, we are the ones on trial. Yep. We are the ones that need to be defended. We are the ones that need to be justified to say, we just do things slightly differently than neurotypicals. We are human. We are just different. Yep. 
And this is a this is a big, big moment for us. And again, she went on to uh, write a whole bunch of other episodes, uh, largely colony focused, where the the crew would encounter a colony. There would be some sort of problem. And inevitably, Data's outsider status would allow him to see things that the crew missed because the crew came at things from this neurotypical human standpoint and data would be able to say well what if we looked at this what if we did this including one episode where you know this this child is on this doomed planet and the the crew says well yeah prime directive looks like they're all screwed and data says i think i'm going to beam up the kid anyway mm-hmm and it, it goes through all this stuff about Data's empathy, even though, you know, Data is expressed throughout the series as not having emotions. He does have Data emotions. He does have Android emotions. When he gets an emotional chip, uh, it causes things into overdrive because he doesn't know how to handle those sort of emotions. But he does have empathy. He His poem to his cat, Spot. Yeah. He loves Spot. Uh, he he wants so to make sure. I want to yeah. pause on this because yes. I have a couple things I want to talk about. But the first is it. animals and autistic culture. So obviously yes. all humans love animals. Animals are very popular. People have dogs. People have cats. But in autistic culture, animals have a very special place. Oh, yes. And I, I guess I want you to talk a little bit about what that what that comes from and why you think animals can be so important. And in some cases, even like life-saving for autistics. One of my big recommendations when I write reports is that everyone be able to look into getting a service animal as a companion. Because so from what I can see, number one, we bond with animals better than most people because we are very perceptive about animal language. Yeah. We are very perceptive about, you know, different intonations of animal sounds, postures, uh, how animals communicate with us because animals are sentient. They do think contrary to a lot of neurotypical popular belief. And we understand a lot of that because we can relate to them. We, we, we pay attention to the little things, they pay attention to us. If you're upset, a cat can sense it, will sit on your belly and purr to calm you down. Yes, and I have we, an emotional yeah. support cat. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I I think this is so key for emotional regulation when we talk about intense world theory. Yes. Um, I, just being with an animal can be very regulating, at least for me, to my um, sensory overload. And yes. I will take frequent breaks to be with my cats um, mm-hmm. and to just get back to some sort of functional level. Yeah. And I think that's part of the bond. Like, I think when you're holistic and you love your cat or your dog, it's like a fun plaything. Let's go throw a ball. It's like a fun, let's go take a walk. Like, it's a fun thing to do. But for me, it's like a, a relationship that allows me to function in a largely holistic world. Yeah. Yeah. You sync up. Mm. Uh, plus, they're fun to stem with because they're nice and furry and, yeah. you know, wiggly that. and that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And we we do need animal companions like that. We need animal companions that fit. Uh, I have a dog, uh, Indiana Bones. But boy. <laughs> He's a professor of archaeology. Yes. Again, with the puns. Uh, you're, you're cranking yeah, him out today. puns. <laughs> exactly. Uh, he, he's a very loud dog, and he lives with my son. But uh, he, is, he is my dog, and uh, he, he, he's a good dog as far as that kind of stuff goes. He understands, uh, he understands boundaries pretty well, except for his very, very loud, thunderous bark. Yeah. Yeah, that's my challenge with dogs. I do love a dog, but the barking oh, yeah. is hard. Unexpected longest, barking is hard. For, for the longest time, my emotional support animal was my hedgehog. Yeah, okay. I and feel it. My, my hedgehog hated every human in the world except me. 
And uh, the hedgehog became a spiky ball of death at any given time when other people tried to touch her. Uh, She would bite the living crap out of them with surprisingly sharp teeth. But when I came around, she would snuffle and do this little snorting, angry growl thing. And I said, it's daddy, daddy's home. And she would, and then she just backed right into my hand and wanted to snuggle on my belly. And she just laid on her back and let me rub her belly and then stuck her leg up so I could give her butt rubs. And she, she would just lay, I, I would have her lay in my shirt every night for hours and hours and hours as I would just rub her belly. And then she would run around the house all night and uh, chase the cats around because they were terrified of her. When autistic people find a special interest, they go deep and have a lot of knowledge, even if they don't have that formal education background to go with it. If you want to capture your spin in a book, check out Angela's work at differencepress.com, differencepress.com, and find out more about becoming an author and establishing your credibility with a book. I think one of the things that happens because autistics have such a different relationship with animals and they serve such a different function that your the holistics in your life or in your family that share the pet might not maybe understand your connection or your need to see your pet or be with your pet or get pictures of your pet or whatever those things are. And that can be really challenging if you're looking at it from the more medical model of autism. But if you look at it in terms of our culture, animals are a huge part of our existence. And so you can embrace that and communicate that with your family. That the way I experience these relationships is different than you. It doesn't mean your way is wrong or my way is wrong, but I think being able to open up that conversation and write a poem to your, write a, write a poem to your cat like Data did. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's the thing. Uh, Data's ode to Spot. He named his cat Spotty, traditionally dog name, but, but that's the thing. Despite, again, not having neurotypical emotions, he was very, very caring for Spot. He, he, he painted Spot, called Spot a pretty cat, a loving cat, and had a lot of data-centric episodes were Spot-focused because he did his job, but he came home to his loving cat. There are a lot of data episodes where he had difficult data dated. Data had a girlfriend uh, on multiple occasions. Uh, His first girlfriend was Tasha Yar, the director of security. Then he dated other women on the Enterprise. And every relationship turned out that he was thinking way too much in the relationship. There is one scene that I will always remember when his girlfriend kisses him and she says, what did, what did you think about that? He said, well, when you kissed me, I was thinking of, I, I need to clean this. I, I need to have these new maneuvers. I need to do this. I need a new food supplement for spot. I wanted to make sure that I had the right pressure on your lips. I wanted to do this. I have to do this. And she said, well, I'm glad I'm in there someplace. And this is a big thing for us because we we do have a lot of stuff going through our heads because of the hyperconnected brain. And outsiders may not understand that. Outsiders may not understand that we do have a genuine, deep relationship with people in our way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this actually uh, transitions well into Constable Odo uh, from Deep Space Nine. Because on Deep Space Nine... Uh, deep, so whereas Star Trek uh, and Star Trek The Next Generation were wagon train in space, Deep Space Nine is essentially the Wild West, uh, a Wild West town uh, on the, the Cardassian frontier. So Constable Odo is a shapeshifter, a literal masker that uh, has relationships with uh, like uh, uh, Major Kira and all the other people on Deep Space Nine. He has this very serious attitude. He wants to keep people in line. Uh, Quark is the local barkeeper slash arms dealer slash very capitalistic 
enterprise owner of a bar. The Ferengi are capitalists at heart, looking for any opportunity at all to make a buck, legal or not. As long as you make the buck, as long as you profit, that is the goal of the Ferengi, because again, ultimate capitalists. So he and Odo butt heads a lot, but they have a begrudging friendship. He and Major Kira are, you know, professional, but, you know, he's sort of got a thing for her. He... He can shapeshift into literally anything, but he chooses to look like the humans as best he can. But being a shapeshifter, uh, his his facial features are sort of muted because he's trying his best to look human uh, and trying to fit in with the humans instead of with the other changelings, which actually becomes a plot point later on because when they join the Dominion and become enemies of the Federation, they essentially kick him out and he's not allowed to go back to the other shapeshifters. And then he has to be one of the humans. And this is a big thing for us because again, we spend a lot of our lives trying to fit in with those around us. We spend a lot of time mimicking other people, mimicking accents, mimicking uh, facial movements, mimicking body movements in order to be accepted by the people around us. And this is a big thing for him. And this is another way that we are represented on screen. But the best part comes with Star Trek Voyager. Because Star Trek Voyager uh, was written and eventually showrun by a guy named Brian Fuller. (laughs) Brian Fuller is probably autistic. Brian Fuller, everything that he has done has had a very, very autistic focus. I first learned of Brian Fuller, well, not uh, aside from uh, Voyager, with the show Dead Like Me. And the show Dead Like Me uh, stars this uh, girl, Georgia Lass. Uh, She works at a temp agency. She is very, very, she has a very, very flat affect. She has a very, very matter of fact way of looking at things. She says, oh yeah, expectations beget disappointment. So the key to life is to not have expectations. So she drops out of college. She works for a temp agency. She doesn't really know her place in the world. And then on lunch break, she's killed by a uh, toilet seat that fell off the Mir space station. So the rest of the series is her adjusting to her afterlife as a Grim Reaper. And it's very, very much this this way of seeing a new life with people like her as contrast with her former family in the neurotypical living world, but she's still very, very, very autistic coded. And he later went on to do Pushing Daisies. Uh, oh, what else? Uh, what? Oh man, Wonderfalls. Was that Wonderfalls? I think it wasn't one. Uh, anyway, but uh, he also did Hannibal where Will Graham is explicitly autistic. And everything about the show Hannibal is through an autistic lens with the hyper empathy because he can visualize these crime scenes, visualize the motives of killers because he hyper empathizes with them. But it also drives him to extreme burnout because he's getting to the minds of all these people by hyper empathizing with these terrible, terrible people and ends up with Hannibal, the the. Hannibal the Cannibal. But but anyway, when Brian Fuller was on Star Trek Voyager, there were three autistic coded characters. Mm. He ramped it up. Uh, so first of all is Tuvok, a Vulcan, just like Spock. Uh, Tuvok is notable for being the first black Vulcan in uh, Star Trek canon. Well, maybe not. Well, the first starring black Vulcan in Star Trek canon. And, of course, he takes Spock's role. He's very logical. He represses his emotions. He has a begrudging friendship with the ship's cook, a local guide named Neelix. They, at one point, a transporter accident accidentally bonds them together. And there's a big... Uh, issue of whether or not to separate them because the the new entity is now uh, a sentient being and in order to separate them back into their original people uh you have to you know kill the new being but anyway tuvok is autistic the emergency medical hologram the doctor is an autistic coded character uh he 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 even does a very good job of mimicking the autistic accent and that makes me wonder if Robert Picardo is one of us because he played the doctor. He's very, very matter of fact when he talks to the patients. He's very, very much in the Bones McCoy sort of mold. When they finally get away for him to travel outside the ship as a sentient hologram, 
He uh, travels to new worlds. He lives among people for around 80 years at one point uh, due to time dilation. He loves learning about humanity. And as the show goes on, he also starts to fight for hologram liberation because he also has an episode that is essentially measure of a man because he writes a hollow book about Voyager. But the, the publisher keeps the royalties from it because they say, oh, yeah, he's just a hologram. He's not a person. So he has to fight from the Delta Quadrant to get recognized as a sentient being. So he writes this big thing about this. And by the end of the episode, he's still not considered full human. But the other holograms who also look like the doctor because they were mass produced are starting to revolt. They are starting to realize that they also need to have this basic human respect to also basically uh, to, to be seen as valid and as human and not activated and deactivated as the humans want. So this is another big struggle for autistic people to be seen as human, to be seen as valid and to be taken seriously, uh, which again, an undercurrent theme throughout the entirety of Star Trek due to potentially autistic writers putting themselves into these situations, writing for an autistic audience. And the last autistic character is Seven of Nine, a female character uh, who is uh, coded as autistic. She was uh, turned into a cyborg, the Borg, early in her life and rescued by the crew of Voyager. And she spends the entirety of Voyager with a very logical way of doing things. She takes social skills lessons from the doctor, another autistic, the, the other autistic coded character. And a lot of it is butting heads with Janeway, who she butted heads with in real life due to contractual stuff and Kate Mulgrew's other stuff uh, with, you know, anyway. But uh, they butt heads because, again, Captain Janeway, very traditional, very, matter of fact, in charge, neurotypical woman. Seven of nine, very take charge, autistic woman. And that leads into a whole new level for autistic female fans and autistic fans who understand what it's like to not be gotten. So for a while, Star Trek went into dormancy because Voyager was on, what, uh, late 90s. Then we have Star Trek Enterprise, which almost had a crossover with Doctor Who, but it fell apart. So Star Trek Enterprise has T'Pol, which was originally going to be Spock's would-be mother-in-law, but they changed it at the last minute because uh, they didn't want to deal with continuity stuff. So again, another female autistic person on the ship talking about Vulcan rights, of talking about how Vulcans do things, how humans do things. One of the big recurring things is that... Uh, because this was, uh, Enterprise is a prequel set before even Star Trek, the original series. So they didn't have all of the, you know, technology that they would eventually have, including like air filters. So she spends a lot of time really, really bothered by sensory stuff, like the smell of the humans. Ha! She gets really, really bothered by chewing noises. She's really, really bothered by smells. Same girl. She's really, yeah, yeah. She is really, really bothered by all this intense sensory stimulation because on Vulcan, they don't have that because they're more evolved. Right. Correct. Yeah. Let's move yeah. there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's again, the, the stuff that a lot of neurotypicals don't realize about us. They see us as bossy and demanding about these little things because they can't perceive the stuff that really, really gets us. So I have, a, I have a couple yeah. uh, on the Go smelling. Um, so first of all, I remember learning about what a pocket full of posies was. Do you know about a pocket full it? of posies? Oh, no, it, it's so brilliant. Some autistic person thought of this. So, um, so you know, um, London Bridge is Falling Down is about yes. the plague. And yes. when you're dying of the plague, it's very smelly. And so what, what people oh, oh, yeah, 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 okay, did, because yeah, gotcha. you're like kind of rotting or whatever. And so what yeah. people did was they would carry around a pocket full of flowers that you could bury your face into, a pocket full of posies. So as you're like walking past the smelly people. So I always think of this. So then when I was in India, which is a very smelly place, and if you are sensory sensitive at all, like India, whoa, that is a master class. And 
everything smells, everything's loud, but all, every single outfit, if you're a woman, comes with a scarf, which is called a chuni in the part of India I was in, which was Delhi. It's called a chuni. And no matter what you're wearing, you always have a chuni because if you go in somewhere, you can cover your head, like modesty, whatever. That's all reasonable. But it's also used if you're touching anything, you put your chuni there. And then you can also wrap your chuni around your face when you're walking by anything smelly. And so I've taken to always having a chuni with me and I spray it with like an essential oil scent that I like. So it smells like a pocket full of posies. And I will always have a scarf with me. So wherever I go, I can put a nice smelling thing in front of my face so I don't have to smell the humans. (laughs) (laughs) or whatever the food smells that's hard all of it so yeah yeah. yeah, so I think a big you know when I think about autistic fashion to me always having a a zip up sweatshirt that you could zip over your nose like hoodies are a big part of autistic fashion and for me having a super soft nice smelling scarf is a big part of autistic fashion yeah yeah yeah, sensory regulation, because you got to tune out the world that is overwhelming. Right. And then also now we're, we're talking about noises and noise canceling headphones. Um, I don't know. Sometimes they're a fashion accessory these days. Um, but having that handy is another like piece of our culture is to be able to have a backpack that has some, you know, maybe a stimming toy or noise canceling headphones or a pocket full of posies. But how are you going to manage all those sensory things if we can't move to Vulcan? So (laughs) that becomes part of our accoutrement in our culture. We love sharing stories of autistic culture. And if you are seeing yourself in any of these stories and you're wondering if maybe you're one of us or maybe you're already diagnosed or self-diagnosed and you want to know if Matt can help you live your life better and be more authentically autistic, check out his website at mattlowerylpp.com. That's Matt, M-A-T-T, Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y. And then that L-P-P, it stands for Licensed Psychological Practitioner. So head on over to mattlowrylpp.com and learn more about working with my buddy, Matt. Living in a human, specifically a, a neurotypical world, is overwhelming and exhausting. And, and I think that to Paul's constant irritation is a very, very autistic thing with this. Uh, She eventually falls in love with uh, the uh, the human on board, well, one of the humans on board, and has the first ever uh, Vulcan human hybrid, and Robocop uh, can't deal with this. Peter Weller is in there. So, uh, yeah, it's a Vulcans versus Robocop, which is a whole interesting thing. But that a- anyway, but but that was the end of Star Trek for a great while until uh, this recent resurgence. Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orki, the, the guys responsible for the Transformers movie that they referred to as writing Campbell's Soup the movie because they didn't want to learn about the characters. They just wanted vehicle endorsements. They, they did not take their job very seriously on that. Uh, but they started working on Star Trek, and Alex Kurtzman became the new Star Trek guru. But he, he apparently was the co-showrunner for Star Trek Discovery with Brian Fuller. So Brian Fuller's idea, make the lead character autistic. Uh, and that would be Michael Burnham, and she was retconned as Spock's human adopted sister. So the entire show is about Michael Burnham, and it was going to be about her relationship at raised as a Vulcan with an autistic slant and saying, this is the most practical thing. It may not be what start what Federation wants. It may not be what this is, but this is the thing that needs to be done. Uh, Saru is a, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember Saru's uh, species name. But anyway, he's essentially a prey species where other uh, another species on his planet 
eat his people. So he escaped and, you know, came to be in Starfleet and eventually becomes, uh, you know, a, a leader for his people. But because Kurtzman was also a co-showrunner, uh, there was a lot of butting heads and eventually Brian Fuller left and Kurtzman, uh, it, it became very, very dramatic, very fast with a lot of, a, a lot of pessimism and a lot of darkness which is not what Star Trek is known for. Hmm. Star Trek is known for optimism of this future that is that could be better than today. And in season two, they brought back Spock. Uh, this is a prequel set before the original Star Trek era. So Spock is still young. They brought in Captain Pike, the original captain from the original pilot. They brought back number one, the original number one from the original pilot. She's also autistic coded, played by Rebecca Romaine. And in a short trek, they go into this autistic dialogue between number one and Spock about masking. Mm. And they, they start singing uh, the, uh, the HMS Pinafore. I am the very model of a major mm. modern major general. And she's she talks about if you want to be taken serious in Starfleet, you have to suppress a lot of stuff because, again, sexism and racism and trying to fit in with the neurotypicals. It's very difficult to be yourself. And so it, it was meant to be a one off for this, but uh, the the people involved with the uh, the Enterprise crew with Captain Pike and Spock, they made a very, very bold proposition that they needed an entire series. And that became Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Mm -hmm. And Alex Kurtzman apparently fought it tooth and nail because he thought the Star Trek should be grim and gritty. But uh, Star Trek Strange New Worlds is dominated by this relentless sense of optimism, as Anson Mount, who plays Captain Pike, put it. And it's one of the best series of Star Trek ever made. I love it. There's a lot of autistic focus between Spock and his fiance to Pring. There, there's entire episodes dedicated to their romantic dialogue and how they relate to each other. The Spock is always duality of emotion and logic. Captain Pike is relentlessly optimistic. Number one is autistic. She finally got a name, Una. But, but, but anyway, it's a fantastic new series but that leads us back to why people seek out star trek why is this important because star trek in itself is autistic because it examines these aspects of civilization it examines these aspects of what it means to be human what it means to be alien it allows us to look at neurotypicality from an outside perspective by going to all these strange new worlds and having all these aliens and we look at their society which is inevitably a distorted mirror reflection of our own and we're able to look at all these different factors from an outside lens and say wow that's kind of messed up that we do that huh wow it's kind of messed up that we do that huh it's kind of and this is the autistic lens because we are perpetual outsiders to mm. all of this stuff we are born with an outside lens. We are born with the hyperconnected brain that causes us to relate to people differently, to think about people differently, to be very, very intense. And because of that, we can't help but question all of this stuff. One of the big things about being autistic is the tendency to not just randomly accept positions of authority. We need a reason to accept people. We need a reason to follow people. And this is another big thing about Star Trek because we've got the prime directive. We've got Star Trek. We've got the Federation having this hierarchy. But inevitably, from Kirk and beyond, there's going to be a situation where you have to buck the system in order to do what is ethically and morally right and trying to figure out what it needs to be done who we are where we are going this is part of the autistic lens and in 2017 there was a movie called please stand by where dakota fanning plays an autistic woman who wants to get her star trek script into this competition and granted it's directed by a presumably holistic uh, director played by uh, a I guess Dakota Fanning is an holistic woman. I don't know. But anyway, it's a lot of autistic representation and why Star Trek means as much as it does for us. Because we connect with the alien. We connect with the robot. We connect with the other. Because we live in a world that does not accept or understand us. 
So therefore, every time we have an interaction with the Federation, we're we're interacting with the brave new world. Yeah. Yeah. I wanna I wanna get into like super fandom as part of oh, autistic yes. culture. Oh, God, yes. But before we do that, the outsider thing, I I wanna talk about this aspect of autistic culture. When you see something from a different perspective, and maybe I know for me a lot of times it's almost easy to do it. Like my brain naturally looks at almost any situation and says, like, how are people seeing this differently than I'm seeing it? Mm -hmm. I know from my perspective, it feels like this is the word that always comes to me is this is like a gift. And what I'm expecting the reaction of everyone else to be is, Oh my God, this, this is a totally different perspective. Thank you. Can we buy you flowers? We're so grateful. We couldn't see it. And now you have shown us this amazing perspective. And I almost never get that reaction. Yes, <laughs> so exactly. there is one exception, which is when I'm with other autistics. So if I give a different perspective to another autistic, I find they are very open and like mind blown and let's explore it. And even if they don't agree with me, they'll be like, oh, but it could be this. It could be this. And we'll be excited with allistics. It is seen as um, some of the words I get describing me are like defensive or argumentative. And that uh. to me, when... My whole brain is saying, oh, my God, they're going to love me. for. I'm about to get flower. I'm about to get a trophy. Yeah. And there is no fucking trophy, my friend. <laughs> no. No, because you go against the grain. And they, they need this hierarchy. They need this structure in order to operate. But, w again, with us, each of us is a world unto ourselves. Each of us have these this world of experience, this world of uh, uh place that we're coming from. And when we explore that, it's exciting for us. That's why we love to get together. That's why we love conventions. This is why, you know, Star Trek conventions are a hallmark of our people. Uh, Sci-fi conventions. We get together and we exchange all these things. We have debates about the, the nature of characters, about the nature of situations, about the nature of reality. We get into this really, really deep stuff. And that's how we socialize. We can't do the small talk. So I would say our our culture from our perspective is about going deep and challenging traditional assumptions and having very detailed, nuanced conversations. I think the way our culture is perceived by allistics is like defensive, difficult, argumentative, a lot of those things. And I've been a part of a super fandom community, a couple of them, not Star Trek, but within any super fan community I've been in, even if it's not uh, coded autistic, super fans tend to be autistic in general, a super fan of anything, doesn't matter, yeah. noise canceling earphones. Like if you are a super fan, we always called ourselves in one of the communities I'm in, Ubers, Uber fans. But if you're an Uber fan, if you're a super fan, if you know everything, yes, if you've got the collection, the complete works, that is, that super fanning is a part of our culture. And I think that's because we are less averse to disagreement. Disagreement is actually somebody cares about this as much as I do. Let's talk about it. Who should, who was the best director? Who was the best sound mixer? Like most obscure inside baseball things we could talk about. Um, exactly. Super fanning is sort of the heart and soul of Star Trek. That is like the ultimate super fandom did did the super fan community of trekkies shape the um shape the universe in some ways i think so i mean honestly because even before the internet the, the, there was Starlog magazine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, there were people writing letters and uh, the letter columns and getting together and talking to producers and talking to writers. And again, the fans became the writers. We 
the, the fans have shaped this from the inception. And I think that that's a big, big part of why autistic, uh, why Star Trek is so autistic, because the super fans, the ones who really, really get into it, are the ones that devote their effort and devote their passion and devote so much energy and time into making it the best that they can possibly make it. And yeah, uh, it that's that's what makes us who we are, and that that helps us shape the worlds that we love. And again, I really think that that's why Strange New Worlds is a bounce back to, you know, some fantastic Trek and some fantastic storytelling because some really intense fans said, hey, let's step in and do this. And I I also think it's in no small part to the Orville because I really, really suspect that Seth MacFarlane could potentially be one of us because he's a major, major Star Trek super fan who didn't get a job writing on Star Trek, so he created his own Star Trek. Love it. Love it. But that's, yeah. So when I was doing research, I came across this article uh, on, uh, was it Movie Crush? Uh, but anyway, I, I thought that this was a fantastic quote. Uh, and I think that this would be a good reason to, uh, I think that this would be a good capper to say why this is important to us. Yeah, uh, it's from autistic superfan Lena Haig. And she said that she loved Star Trek because it always promoted the importance of equality with crew members believed to be autistic and getting along in a world with fairness and justice. It's easy for some autistic fans to feel like it was a world that they could live in and feel like a part of our real world communities, too. Even while not being a super fan, Star Trek always makes me feel as though I could live in an accepting world so that so many of my friends and fellow autistics observed throughout the galaxy and dream of here on Earth. And I think that that is, that is why Star Trek is autistic. And if you want to read the entire article, I believe it's on Screen Crush. But if you do a Google search, we'll put for, it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, we, we'll put it on there. And uh, it, it's a great article. But yeah, I, I, I really believe that Star Trek is autistic and the, that the future itself is going to be more autistic. Yeah, yeah, it is. But yeah, so, so, so Angela, what is your favorite part about being autistic this week? Well, I got I got to go super fan on you since we're ending here. So uh, so this is one of the fun things about being a super fan is the interconnected worlds. And so you talked earlier about Brian Fuller and there's the whole Fuller verse. If you uh, like Hannibal, you'll end up and you're a super fan. You'll end up watching all of the other shows, American Gods, Pushing Daisies, Dead Like Me. You'll you'll go into all of that. So for me, one of my major super fandoms is a band called Crowded House. They're an Australian New Zealand band. Lead Singer's New Zealand band was formed in Australia. That's too much detail, but I'm info dumping already. Anyway, um, with bands, the the participants in each band will often go off and play other projects. And sometimes they're not in a musical style that you know or are familiar with. So uh, there are many spinoff bands that crowdies were known as finheads. There's many spinoff bands and much music and different types of music I've been introduced to and I've gotten to learn about because of projects that were done by members of the band. One of them is a band I always liked. I never really thought much about. They were just always there. And it's the band Fleetwood Mac. Oh, yes. So um, Neil Finn, a couple years ago, was tapped to replace the guitarist who left Fleetwood Mac. And he, so I got into Fleetwood Mac. I never thought I'd be into Fleetwood Mac, but sure, let's do it. And I really fell in love with, we go deep cuts, So um, I really fell in love with a song that Neil Finn wrote with Christine McVie, um, who was his closest friend in the band Fleetwood Mac. So I got into Christine McVie and listened to her deep cuts and read a whole bunch of weird 
tweets and posts trying to find like what day were Christine McVie and Neil Finn together and then mapping Neil's house in LA that he bought for $4.3 million to Christine McVie's house. I don't know why I need to know every detail of Neil Finn's like real estate activities. Because you're data seeking. You need to do this. Your brain is hungry for data. All of it. Give me all the data. So uh, when we're recording this, Christine McVie just passed. um, And I immediately went to where everyone went when Christine McVie died, which was Neil Finn's blog. So I could read his reflections on Christine McVie. And this is what I love about being autistic, because I know so much about something that I wouldn't otherwise know about if I weren't in this spider web of like digging deep in my musical hero, Neil Finn's life. So here's to Christine McVie. So many amazing songs from her and to the beauty of super fandom and all the extra things you get to learn. Absolutely. Uh, I love it. I love it. Well, we want to hear about your super fandom. Are you a Trekkie? Uh, Go ahead and drop that in the comments or share something you love diving, diving deep on. We love our fellow info dumpers, data seekers. Share your data with us. Drop it in the comments. Please like and share these podcasts. Um, We want to make our autistic culture richer and more celebrated and less pathologized. And when you share these stories, you help us do just that. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Autistic Culture Podcast. If you like this show, you can help other people find it by taking a few minutes to rate and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can find out more about writing your book with me at differencepress.com. That's difference, D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-C-E, press, P-R-E-S-S.com. Or getting a psychological evaluation or consult with me at www.mattlowrylpp.com. That's M-A-T-T, Matt Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y, L-P-P, as in Licensed Psychological Practitioner.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember, no one ever changed the world by being like everyone else. Thank you.